So I almost titled this talk, What Do You Actually Think Restoration Looks Like? Now I didn't because it seemed really a bit punchy for such a soft subject, but after you go through this talk with me, I think you'll understand that line or that question, what do you think restoration actually looks like from a place of tenderness and maybe, hopefully, from a place of hope. Now, as we're going back and forth about, uh, Jim Bob wrote a foreword for the Claim Your Freedom book. There's a whole book that goes with this uh, talk series. Um, we're in downtown Salt Lake in a pub and we're discussing really hard things. He had experienced his own version of a few tough chapters of life, just like me. Each of us have different details. Now, both stories, they were, and I would even say they still are, they're difficult to live in their unique ways because you still pick up those pieces and some of that past never really leaves you. You still carry that stuff with you. Uh, about the time the appetizers hit the table, JB, he looks up and he says, you know, everyone looks at the book of Job as this great story of redemption. I used to, I confessed, but I just don't see it just as that anymore. He said, yeah, it's way more complex than that. Now, we discussed the tension between the beginning of the book, when Job's life is ripped out from under him, and then the end of the book, when things are, here's the word, restored multiple times over what he originally had. And we talked about how that's the surface read. Now, the first few verses of the entire book, they rock him. So, the Sabians invade, taking his oxen and killing his servants. That's in Job 1.13. And then fire falls from heaven, obliterating his herd of sheep and the servants who tended them. That's in verse 16. In verse 17, the Chaldeans, they swoop in, swiping his camels. And then in verse 18 and 19, as if all of that's not enough, here's the big one. A strong wind breezes through, knocking the supports from beneath his house, causing the roof to fall in and to crush, to crush all of his kids, burying them alive. His friends all blamed him for this. Surely, life wasn't working his way because of some secret clutter, some stashed away skeleton, or a pet sin that he nurtured. That, that's what they told him. Now, God later corrected them, attesting to Job's righteousness. But in the middle of all of this, his wife couldn't stand him. That's in Job 19.17. She loathed the fact that he even breathed and encouraged him to die. That's exactly how it's pinned in the Bible. At the end of the story, JB said, Job ends up with twice as much wealth as before. His net worth doubles overnight. That's, uh, for those of you who are keeping up with this, that's in Job 42.10. And then J Jim Bob continued. He said, in, fa in fact, the Bible says people actually brought money to Job as an offering of love and support. Yes, I said. And he has seven more sons and three more daughters. But he still lost his family in the beginning. Restoration didn't mean they come back from the dead. And then we continued. We have no idea what happened to his wife in all of this. We don't read much about her at the end. Did she stay around and see her way through all of it? Or is it a different woman at the end of Job's story than the beginning? We decided there's no way to know all of the answers to all of the questions that this story raises. We do know, though, that the restored life didn't look like a cleaned up and returned version of the old one. He still mourned his kids for the rest of an extremely long life. 
Uh, he lost servants and co-workers who were once close to him. His friendships may never have been the same with the people who wrongfully accused him. Life was different. Jim Bob told me, he said, we lost Evans a few years ago. We got through it. The Lord restored us. But my son is still dead. I still miss him, even though he was only with us for a few hours. That's part of the tension. In that moment, in some way I could sympathize, not, not in the same way, but in some way. I spent a solid year jumping through every conceivable hoop and meeting every demand that was given to me. And no matter how good I was or how I begged for relational healing, I was blackballed, ghosted, and met with legal shenanigans. You see, restoration, it doesn't always mean return. We, we like to think it does, but many times it just doesn't. I suppose I realized that maybe six months ago. I just didn't have language for it back then. That was about the time I found myself, I was really grieving. I realized that things I had hoped and prayed for would probably never return to the way they were. The truth is that after any difficult season, things may never return just like they were before. And in fact, if we're honest, we probably don't want them to, not just like they were before anyway. You see, it's easy to look back at life after a traumatic event, or events, plural, and wish we could just go back to how things used to be. Our minds have a powerful way of not only causing us to avoid pain in the future by perceiving reality in ways that protect us and all those hidden rules and things we've discussed, but they also have a way of re-scripting the past such that we often remember a greatest hits or highlight real rewind rather than the raw reality we endured. And because we observe the rearview mirror of life with rose-colored glasses sometimes, we tend to overlook some of the pain and dysfunction we've endured. When we take an honest assessment, we see it, and that means that even though no situation is ever perfect or ever will be, sometimes things do need to go back to how it was, and sometimes they don't. For a season, one of the things that yanks us back to the past is grief, an extremely real emotion that we talk too little about. You see, we experience grief that trauma came and that pain happened. And then we often feel grief over what we expected to happen next, like perhaps an outcome, a redemption, a forgiveness that was withheld. Then there's grief over things that we may miss in the future. For instance, a spouse dies or abandons you, so it dawns on us that we won't celebrate future milestones uh, like anniversaries or we won't grow old together. Our kids' weddings will not be laced with uh, what they could have been with, but now they might be filled with awkwardness and strange family dynamics rather than a unified front. Then there's grief over the notion that we're even grieving and that we thought we would be in a different place by this point in our lives. It's all complex and it's the stuff that needs to be sorted during those pauses of Sabbath and sleep. But in other words, grief and dealing with the hard things, it's one of the reasons that we need to slow down and we need to live in the right rhythm. This stuff just takes time. Now that said, I, I want to highlight something that... It often, and not, not always, but often, it happens when people face situations that demand grief. And here it is. We often create a false scale of polar opposites. On one extreme, we place the label imperfect, and on the other side, we place the label valuable. And as we move towards the direction of imperfection, by necessity, it pulls us farther away from valuable. And that's really a false skill. I'm going to put this, a picture of this 
in the show notes. Here, here's the result. The more perfect things are, uh, including less hard things, less emotional baggage, less spiritual clutter, the more valuable we perceive ourselves to be. The worse things are, the more worthless we perceive our things to be. And this is really a difficult place to be for several reasons. First, most things in life are clearly out of our control. So perfection in any area, it's usually impossible. And second of all, that worthless to perfect scale, it's a false dichotomy anyway. The, the opposite of perfect is imperfect, not worthless. And the opposite of worthless is, is valuable, not perfect. So these are true opposites is imperfect to perfect or worthless to valuable. And it's possible, in other words, to be imperfect and to be valuable at the same time. And we can all agree that things, there's things that we're great at and there's things that we're not so great at. And in fact, like this perfect and invaluable, like that dichotomy, that describes the human condition perfectly. So it's okay to affirm our value and then simultaneously to embrace the imperfections of life, even the ones that result from our poor decisions. We often don't translate that core message to our true deep identity, though. We often feel like we got what we deserve because we're not valuable. That's just not the case. Let me maybe add another layer to some of this. I've spent the majority of my life in church world. And when you do that, you get to hear a lot of statements that sound right, but just aren't true. You add to that today's propensity towards sound bites, memes, and tweetable quotes, and you've got a situation that's ripe for slick-sounding almost truths. Uh, Here's one. Uh, Your wounds should never be part of your identity, some people say. If they are, it shows you haven't fully healed yet. Or, you'll get over it. (laughs) Hogwash. Or whatever phrase like you want to toss in there that you know is acceptable to record. A few years ago, you know Jim Bob and Cindy lost the baby boy Evans, and that was after a few rough years, uh, followed by a reconnection and restoration of their marriage. Evans' birth seemed like absolute redemption, but then within just a few hours, it didn't seem like redemption anymore. He was gone. Do you get over that? No, Jim Bob said but you do figure out a way to get through it, and sometimes that means the scars, the evidence of the wounds, remain. They no longer control the story, but they're part of it, perhaps even a significant part. Now, that said, let me back that up with Bible. When they killed Jesus, they battered him mercilessly. Um, Isaiah prophesied that the soldiers would beat him so horrifically that you wouldn't even be able to recognize who he was or that he was even a human. That's in Isaiah 53. They shredded his back. They forced a crown of thick thorns into, not just onto, but into his skull. And they shoved a spear through his abdomen to puncture his heart. After he arose from the dead, he bore almost none of those scars. That's right, almost. Clearly, when the disciples questioned as to whether or not it was him, he showed them certain scars which remained, the ones where the nails punctured him and the wound that was on his side. That's in John 20, 20. In fact, those scars were his proof to a doubting Thomas that he was indeed himself. Jesus encouraged Thomas, look, see the wounds in my hands and the wound on my side in John 20, 27. I don't know, honestly, the significance of some scars for some people as opposed to the other scars for others. I do know that some scars remain and others don't. And perhaps part of the difference is this, is that whole people, 
Those who've claimed their freedom and learned to walk with grace and health don't lead with the scars. Rather, they selectively, deliberately reveal them when those wounds can encourage, equip, and empower someone else to put one foot forward and begin their freedom march too. That is, perhaps the sharing works best when it's no longer about the one who is now free. It's about those who remain in the struggle. I don't know. I'm still processing it. I, I tend to write books for myself and do podcast chats on things that I need to know, not things I've mastered. And right now, I'm really digging and trying to figure this one out. I, I do know that the narrative of our lives, um, that the more whole we become, that these narratives, these stories, like we've talked about rewriting the script and living that story arc and putting a new storyline and re getting a recast of the character, I do know that those narratives, they become a living version of what's called kintsukori. Kintsukori is a Japanese art form in which broken pottery, it's repaired. And rather than restoring the piece, you've seen these, to look as if it's never been damaged, which is really impossible, the artisan then injects gold into the cracks as the pottery, the bowl, the vase, the plate is put back together. Those flaws are accentuated, celebrated. In other words, not only are those flaws not hidden, those flaws are actually highlighted, yet at the same time, those scars never determine the final shape of the vessel. The identity originally given to it by the Creator does. That's somewhat of an oxymoron right there, isn't it? Now, Google it, Kintsukori. I'll spell it down in the show notes. The new version of the pottery looks like the old, but better. It's simultaneously more raw and more beautiful than the original untainted version. And here's where it applies to our life. Grace is that gold and healing and the wholeness we walk in as we therapeuo, to use the word from a previous talk, as we therapeuo our way forward. F furthermore, I would say this is the trifecta of grace plus healing plus wholeness. It means that my imperfections now serve a greater purpose than the pain and the shame that originally created them. And the more golden those scars become, the more whole I am and the greater substance I can carry. Let me maybe give you an example. In the Old Testament, there is a woman that we meet. It's a prostitute named Rahab. Before taking over the Promised Land, Joshua sent two spies to scout the land. You may remember the story. Apparently, they spent the night in her home. With all the coming and going, they would never be noticed there. Plus, even if they were, no one would ever tattle who was in the whorehouse with them because in doing so, they would effectively rat themselves out. Now she told the spies that the people of Jericho had been melting in fear, that's her quote, for the previous 40 years because of them. Even though the Israelites were certain that the giants in the land would smash them, that, that's what they said in Numbers 13, 33, after the 12 spies went in originally, the giants were actually afraid of them melting. So Rahab told them, save me and my family. The two spies agreed as long as she threw a red cord in the window of her home in the window that sat in the city wall. That's in Joshua 2.18. Now, the question is this, where did the red cord come from? Well, it came from her door. Before electricity made red light districts possible, scarlet cords were the signposts that prostitutes and madams hung to denote that they were open for business. 
She took that sign, the one thing that would have marked her as a woman of shame, and she placed it in her window for the entire world to see. Everyone marching with Israel would see and know the very thing that shamed her was now the thing that marked her for salvation. The red scar became gold. And here's where things get even more interesting. Not only is this woman mentioned the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11.31, but she's also an ancestor of King David. That makes her an ancestor of Jesus, the author of an embodiment of the grace, healing, wholeness trio that creates the gold where the flaws once were. She's also listed in the genealogical records that we generally skip when we go looking for the Christmas story. She's in Matthew 1.5, five verses into the New Testament. And then there's also this. That red cord is featured all throughout the sacrificial system. Apparently, when the priests laid an offering on the altar, they also set a red cord atop it for everyone to see. Like, look up Leviticus 14, 49 through 51, or Numbers 19, 6. It's almost like, let's just toss this skeleton that's in the closet right there into the middle of the room, is what the sacrificial system effectively communicated. It's the ancient version of that M&M rap that I referred to, if you remember this, in the intro talk from 8 Mile, where he just drops out all of his clutter and strips the enemy of the power to accuse because he leads with this false, he leads with the scars. Now, that straight Bible, how's that for irony? And perhaps this is what Isaiah meant when he wrote, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall be like wool in Isaiah 1.18. Yeah, you see, grace works when we strip the accuser of his accusation, taking it and then flipping it into a signifier of salvation. Now, this is real deal, and this is raw, and this is how we live. We are that potter. We, we are that kinsukori. In fact, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Or another translation says, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing greatness of the power may be from God and not of ourselves. Now, we, we love that verse. Um, we place that verse on coffee mugs and Christian calendars and bookmarks. I want you to notice the next verses, though, after that, because that speaks to the truth. Um, but look at the context of 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. It says, We are hard-pressed in every way, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, yet not in despair. We're persecuted, yet not forsaken. Struck down, yet not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Christ may be revealed in our mortal body. Notice that tension. The revelation, it shines in our flesh, in human form. Jesus doesn't reveal himself just through books, like the Bible. He does, but he reveals himself through the grit of the broken places, through the gold that shines in earthen vessels where the falls once were. Paul reminds us in another passage that it is precisely in the places in which he himself, Paul, was weak, that he, because of the presence of the living Christ that embodies him, that treasure in his earthen vessel, that's what made him strong. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12.10, I now delight in my weaknesses, in insults and hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
Now, personally, I'll tell you, I'm not there yet delighting in the hard things, but Paul is clear that God's power is made complete. It's made whole in the weak places. I mean, that's just straight 2 Corinthians 12, 9. That, that is the place where he manifests, is in those fractures. The gold, it can only be placed in us, you see, where there are cracks to be filled. No cracks, no space. No space, no gold to fill the void. Brokenness is the thing to which grace almost exclusively binds. Um, Donner, Donald Miller, he, he writes this in his book, Scary Close. Grace only sticks to our imperfections. Those who can't accept their imperfections can't accept grace either. Now, in recovery, uh, 12-step program, why celebrate recovery? I talked about that uh, several weeks ago in the episode on addiction and the roots and the fruits. In recovery, you eventually get to step number four. That's the infamous place where you pause and you take a moral inventory of your life. Now, I know it firsthand because not only have I written and shot a film for a 12-step program, I have mentioned that. I'll put it in the show notes. It's called The Next Best Step. But I attended a 12-step program um, for a long time, and I, I did the studies and the, the books and the manuals and filled out and wrote and journeyed and went deep. Um, in fact, so, some of the stories that I told you over the past several weeks are pieces of the overflow of my step four. Now, sponsors, they tell you this. When you get to step four, they say, don't just write down the bad. Step four is an inventory of your life, not just a list of your failures. It should be balanced. Now, I get that, and I think that that's a healthy way to look at it because sometimes, yeah, our stories, they may seem lopsided, slanted towards the bad, especially when we're cleaning up the clutter and walking towards wholeness and freedom, whether the trauma was our fault, something we did, or whether it was something that was done to us. Like, our stories can seem slanted towards the bad, yet I want to remind you, like, that's where we meet grace. And it's where we truly uncover that grace is not a theological system. It's not a random bit of verses that are strung together. Grace isn't even a sentimental feeling that things are forgiven and that something will work out for the best. Yeah, sure, grace is all of that, but grace is more. And this is where I want to land the entire Claim Your Freedom series. Grace is a person. Grace has a name. Grace is called Jesus. Now, I avoided my story for years because there were things in it I couldn't fathom. Owning the story meant owning that the main character of the story was actually me like i was the common denominator in every episode of my life right i've seen though firsthand jesus didn't come to condemn that's just straight john 3 17. that verse right after 16 god didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved he came to save and he continues saving and that salvation is now and regardless if people would pick up and throw rocks or hold rocks like and just cling to them just in case they might need them in the future grace still always outshines outstrips and outworks any of that here's what's odd during the new testament era they were so certain that salvation was a now in this lifetime experience that so many punted off the promise of heaven to the future Paul had to go out of his way in 1 Corinthians 15 
uh, and I'll put a link in the show notes where you can listen to an old podcast where I've talked about this. He had to go out of his way to remind them, no, 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 no. Salvation is future, yes, but all of this redemption and all of this gracing and all of this forgiving and all of this powerment and all of this setting the rocks down like it starts now. We, we often flip it backwards. We, we forget that Jesus invades life now. And when he comes, he always brings with him the fullness of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. Uh, he moves us gently, graciously from our past to our potential. And he does that completely wounds, fractures, scars, and all. He seals the cracks with the gold of grace so that we no longer leak our pain. And then he fills us so that we overflow his presence. Ken, Sue, Corey. That is a perfect image of what we are. So, as I sign off, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his great face of favor shine upon you. May you be healed. May you walk in health. And may the gold in those scars highlight the possibility of wholeness to others. May your story become the story that at some point gives others hope that they too can make it. And may you find peace not in return to what was, but in return.